lift off and the clock has started. This is 20 minutes you'll never get back. Welcome to 20 Minutes You'll Never Get Back. My name is Doug Prezak, and I would like to thank uh, this episode's announcer, Hudson. Great job, buddy. appreciate it. And I would also like to thank you for tuning in and listening to these podcasts. It means a lot to me that you, uh, you care enough to listen. So thank you very much. Let's uh, get to it. The clock is running. As I'm recording this particular podcast, we're still in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic. And for the longest time, everything's been shut down. You couldn't go anywhere. Amusement parks, zoos, beaches, malls. There was just no place to go. Uh, slowly, some things are opening up. But when it was everything was shut down, I realized there was one particular place that I, I kind of missed. And that was Las Vegas. Now, don't get excited. I, I am not a big-time gambler by any stretch of the imagination. As a matter of fact, I don't even qualify for a medium-time or small-time gambler. No, I'll head into Las Vegas with a crisp $20 bill in my pocket and see how long that lasts. And in case you were wondering, the correct answer to that question is about 18 seconds. I look at it this way. It's like I'm paying an entry fee. I might as well go into a casino and walk up to the big, gigantic, burly guard security person standing there, give him a $20 bill and have him put a wristband on my wrist that says I'm allowed to be in the casino. As a matter of fact, that wristband will get me into all the casinos because I paid my $20 entry fee. It's also fun to go to Vegas with friends. And I am centered enough to know that I am going to lose and they are going to win. We have a couple of really good friends. We go to Vegas with them. And the minute uh, they walk in the door, machines they're not even playing will start paying off. We'll sit down at a bank of four machines. And my wife and I have our $20 bills. And within seconds, all of a sudden, casino security is over by them signing off papers because they just won like a bajillion dollars. Meanwhile, my 18 seconds are up, but I do have my wristband. I don't know if you've seen the new versions of all the slot machines. They have a, a video screen on there. And when you put your player's club card into the slot, it'll say, hi, so-and-so, you have earned 6,000 points so far. Trade those in. Uh, when I put my player's club card in the machine, it just says, hi, Doug, why bother? A lot of the casinos are reopening now. As a matter of fact, I just read that one of them is even reopening their buffet line. Rest assured, it is going to be a long time before I plunge myself back into the pool of humanity that is Las Vegas. I just have a couple words for people there. People, face masks, wear your face masks. Now, there's a lot of other things to do in Vegas, and I have a lot of observations, but we'll get into that at the uh, later on in this podcast. But right now, let's find out just exactly how Las Vegas came to be. And again, I've done the research, so you don't have to. Okay, Sherman, set the Wayback Machine to 1829. That was a early 1960s reference, and if you get that, you're welcome. If you don't, well, you're too young. Anyway, let's go to 1829. That was a good year because that's when Rafael Rivera, you may remember him from your history classes. Oh, brother. Okay, I'm sorry. I apologize. I apologize sincerely. That just sounded way too Alex Trebecki. If you remember from your history class. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I had no idea who that is. I had to look it up. So I, I'm sorry it sounded like that. Let's just all remember Rafael Rivera, 1829. Okay, and go. 
Rafael was a member of a Spanish trading party that was on its way to Los Angeles, and they came across the Las Vegas Valley there. There are a lot of artesian wells in the area, and greenery areas popped up, and he named it the Meadows. But because they were Spanish, they called it Las Vegas, which means the Meadows. Then in 1911, a railroad line was established between Salt Lake City and Los Angeles, and Las Vegas became a watering stop and a short layover. And with the train stopping by and the water being available, the little town of Las Vegas grew to a population of about 5,000. Being a little tiny town in the middle of the desert with nothing to do, it wasn't long before illegal gambling houses popped up in the landscape. And you could probably see where this is going to end up. In 1930, President uh, Herbert Hoover signed the appropriation bill to start the construction of Boulder Dam, which we know today as Hoover Dam. You know, there's so many damn jokes I could put in here, but I, I don't have time. I only have 15 minutes left, so let's keep going. Construction on the dam started in 1931, and at that time, Las Vegas's population swelled from about 5,000 to 25,000 people, and most of them were males looking for jobs to build the dam. It's kind of obvious that when you've got 20,000 workers uh, with nothing to do in their off-shift time, there was a pretty good need for some uh, extracurricular activities. So what happened is Las Vegas decided they would legalize gambling in 1931, and a combination of local business owners in Las Vegas and the mafia saw an opportunity for a lot of potential growth and money in the area. So with gambling legal now, it wasn't long before a lot of casinos started popping up and venues that were called showgirl theaters. I will let you determine what that really means. I'm not going to go any further than saying they were called showgirl theaters. Despite all the known crime figures in the area at the time, the local businesses, they tried to make it Las Vegas seem like it was, it was respectable because the Secretary of the Interior was on his way to visit the dam site. Unfortunately, a subordinate was discovered with alcohol in his breath, and the government decided that a federally controlled town was going to be necessary, hence the creation of Boulder City. That was a town that was built specifically to house all the construction workers, keep them in one place. The legalized gaming allowed Vegas to continue to grow, and uh, casinos started building up around town, and Fremont Street became a hotspot for the casinos. As a matter of fact, Fremont Street became the first paved road in Las Vegas, and they got their first stoplight in 1931. Now, the government did not take kindly to all this. Remember, they had built Boulder City, and they restricted the flow of the workers to go into Las Vegas. But men being men, wanting to get into town, they figured out ways of doing it. And trying to tell them they can't go into town, it's like me putting a hot dog on the counter and telling my cat not to eat it. It's going to happen. Boulder Dam was completed, or Hoover Dam if you'd like. It was completed in 1935. And then in 1937, the Southern Nevada Power became the first utility to supply power from the dam. And guess who the first customer was? Yep. Las Vegas. The electricity came into Vegas and Fremont Street became known as Glitter Gulch. And that was due to all the bright lights that were powered by electricity from the dam. Well, the bright lights of Glitter Gulch in Las Vegas continued to attract a lot of people. And in the late 40s, one name stands out as the founder of Las Vegas Strip. And I'll tell you who that is right after the break.
notion. Fifty cents for shaving cream, a dollar for the lotion. Old Spice means quality, said the captain to the bosun. So look for the package with the ship that sails the ocean. Yo-ho, yo-ho. Man, you just got to love Old Spice, don't you? Before the break, we were talking about uh, the one name that stands out as the founder of the Las Vegas Strip, and that name is Bugsy Siegel. Siegel was an American mobster, and he was known as the most infamous and feared gangster of his day. He was also one of the founders of Murder Incorporated. That kind of says it all for you. In 1939, he was tried for the murder of fellow mobster Harry Greenberg, but he was acquitted in 1942. And shortly after that, Siegel traveled to Las Vegas, where he handled and financed some of the original casinos. And one of the projects he got involved with was to help developer William Wilkerson's Flamingo Hotel after Wilkerson ran out of funds. In 1946, Siegel decided that the agreement between him and Wilkerson had to be altered to give Siegel more control of the Flamingo. And then Wilkerson was eventually, oh, we'll just use the word coerced, into selling all of the stakes of the Flamingo to Siegel. From that point, the Flamingo became a completely syndicate-controlled hotel and casino. Now keep in mind that Siegel had made a lot of promises to the mob bosses back east. And when the Flamingo finally opened its doors on December 26th of 1946, only the casino, a lounge, a theater, and a restaurant were finished. A lot of locals attended the opening, but very few of the celebrities that had been promised actually showed up. And those who did show up for the opening, well, they were met with construction noise, uh, a lobby that was draped with drop cloths, and the desert's first air conditioning that regularly stopped working. The gaming tables were operating, but all the luxury rooms that Siegel had promised to lure people in to stay and gamble, those weren't ready and no one could stay there. After two weeks, the Flamingo's gaming tables were $275,000 in the red, and the entire operation was shut down in late January of 1947. Uh, again, the mob bosses were not very happy, but they did grant Siegel a second chance. So he knuckled down, he did everything possible to turn the Flamingo into a success, by making renovations and obtaining some good press. He hired a uh, newsman named Hank Greenspun as a publicist, and the Flamingo reopened March 1st, 1947, despite the hotel not being complete. Now, this time, the results proved differently, and by May, the resort actually reported a $250,000 profit. However, by the time the profits began improving, the mob bosses had become very tired of Seagull and tired of waiting. So what happened next? Well, if you've seen the movie Bugsy with Warren Beatty, you know. Or you're intelligent people, you've probably already figured it out. Yeah, Bugsy Siegel got sopranoed. I know it's a controversial ending of Soprano. Did he get whacked or did he not? But in this case, yeah, Siegel did. June 20th, 1947, he was uh, relaxing in the Beverly Hills house that he shared with Virginia Hill, which is his girlfriend. She was away at the time, so good fortune fell on her. And two mobster hitmen approached the house. Now, let me stop right here and say, this is still an unsolved crime. Nobody knows who did this, but come on. We all know. Anyway, the hitmen approached the side window and fired nine shotgun blasts into the house. And, well, it was all over for Bugsy. 
There's no doubt that Bugsy Siegel was the founder of what we now know as the Las Vegas Strip, but upon his demise, the mafia stayed in place and continued to run Las Vegas for quite a while. Even with the general knowledge that most of the casino owners had, shall we just say, dubious backgrounds, by 1954, over 8 million people were visiting Las Vegas regularly and pumping in about $200 million into the casinos. The electricity from Boulder Dam also allowed building of many, many more new hotels along the Strip. By the late 50s and early 60s, gambling was no longer the only attraction in town. No, the Hollywood elite would be pouring into Vegas regularly, and the biggest stars of film and music, you know, like Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Andy Williams, uh, Liberace, Bing Crosby, Carol Channing, Carol Channing, Anyway, they, uh, they all performed in small, intimate theater settings. Then after the coming see these stars, then the tourists would go back and resume their gambling and then go off and have something to eat. We will discuss Las Vegas restaurants a little later on. But anyway, that's what they would do. The Mafia Rat Pack of Las Vegas came to a gradual end in the 1980s, and that happened because of the aging out of the World War II generation and the decline of organized crime elements and the rise of baby boomer entrepreneurs. I am a baby boomer. I have no idea why I did not get on this action. My 20 bucks would have gone a long way. Those baby boomer entrepreneurs, which did not include me, began a new chapter in Las Vegas's history with the so-called mega resorts. Back in 1989, uh, developer Steve Wynn actually kicked off the mega resort era when he started construction on the Mirage Hotel and Casino. And what makes it unique is that this was the first casino that was built with money from Wall Street, not mafia money. No, this is all junk bonds and trading bonds out of Wall Street. With the mega resort era and all these giant casinos and hotels, you could be in Paris, you could be in Rome, you could be in the streets of New York. Uh, Las Vegas took a slight twist for a while and it became sort of a family fun destination place. The MGM Grand actually had an amusement park behind it. Uh, Circus Circus still has their Adventure Dome. Every casino had carved out large pieces of real estate for arcades. And what was happening now is that mom and dad were spending their money buying roller coaster tickets and tokens for arcade games instead of dropping that money into the slot machines. Well, it didn't take long for the executives of Las Vegas to realize that this family-friendly concept was not turning the profits that they were expecting, and it wasn't long before Las Vegas returned to its original self. The latest wave to hit Las Vegas are the millennials and the upscale scene. Every major casino now has its own private upscale club, and frankly, those are way out of my age league. But you see a lot of young people walking the strip, especially at nighttime, all dressed up, and the girls are all in their fancy high heels. But, you know, don't feel sorry for them because in several locations, there are vending machines that sell uh, disposable flat shoes. Another part of the upscale scene are the restaurants. Every single celebrity chef worth their weight and a pinch of salt has at least one. Some of them have two or even three restaurants. Dinner for two is going to start at a minimum of $100, and that's if you're eating on the cheap. Just kind of for kicks and giggles, we'll walk around and we'll look at a menu for some of these restaurants, and an appetizer will cost you $30. If you want a steak, it's $80. Uh, and some of them, the price is, if you have to ask, you can't eat here. 
And if you want to eat on the cheap, that's okay. Contact me. I know where every single food court is. And now professional sports have made their way to Las Vegas. Las Vegas has the Las Vegas Golden Knights hockey team. And they are a young team, but they are very well established. And they have a winning record. Starting in September of 2020, Las Vegas gets its first NFL football team. And that's when the Oakland Raiders, excuse me, the former Oakland Raiders, move into town and become the Las Vegas Raiders. They are one of the league's oldest teams, and they have a record. So after everything I've just said, why do I miss Vegas? It's simple. It's the experience. I mean, the lights at night are, really are quite fantastic. It's, it's a pretty amazing place. And when your $20 is gone, like mine always is, the best thing to do is to go outside, find a table, sit down, order that $12 beer, and watch people walk by. You will see every single segment of society walk by you. It's quite an entertaining scene. But let me tell you what my wife always tells me, don't point. Lastly, I'd like to leave you with a couple of facts about Las Vegas. One, every year there are 22,000 conventions. So keep that in mind when you're trying to book that hotel, hotel room. Two, every day there are 45,000 cars that travel up and down the Las Vegas Strip. Three, this one's going to sound really strange because despite all of the gambling and all the betting you can do in Las Vegas, the state of Nevada does not have a lottery. And lastly, the famous Las Vegas Strip we've been talking about is actually not within the city of Las Vegas. It's in a town called Paradise. So there you go. Now you know. All righty, wrapping this up, what have we learned? Well, we learned that you now know who Rafael Rivera is that the uh, dam builders weren't allowed to go to Las Vegas. The mafia was there, and now they're not, at least as far as we know. Bugsy Single got himself all kinds of dead. Celebrity chef restaurants, expensive. Fashion Island food court, cheap. And lastly, the Las Vegas Strip should really be called the Paradise Strip. That's it. I'm going to give you back 90 seconds as promised. I appreciate you tuning and listening, and I hope you tune in next time. For 20 minutes, you'll never get back. Bye-bye. Hi, it's me again, Doug. I want to take up a couple more seconds of your time just to remind you, if you want to stay informed of when uh, the next podcast is posted, all you need to do is sign up at uh, on that Instagram machine. It's at 20MYNGB, 20MYNGB, and that means 20 minutes you'll never get back. Uh, If you sign up there, you'll uh, always see when the next podcast is uploaded. And if you want to leave some comments, by all means, please do go to the uh, website at 20minutespodcast.com. So it's 20minutespodcast.com, and uh, you can... uh, Leave your comments there. It also tells you how you can be an announcer for the show. So take take a look at those two things if you'd like and stay informed. And all, as always, thank you very much for listening to uh, 20 Minutes. You'll never get back. Bye-bye.